Welcome to episode four of the 18th Shadow Radio. This is your author and narrator, John Lee Grafton. The 18th Shadow, Phase 1, Dawn of the Courtesan, Chapter 1.4, The Slaughterhouse Rules. January 2080, two years, nine months before event. The green characters of the holoclock read 3.32 a.m. It was the time of night at Greystone Behavioral Modification Hospital when a band of yellow light cast by an LED street lamp beyond the window reflected off the polished cement floor behind the nurse's station. The light made Marlene Fossbender's face look like a deflated basketball. Were it not for the psychologically engineered jazz streaming over the comm, the halls would have been quiet as an idling hovecar. Interior microdrones flitted past on an occasional ocean of bleeps, and the auto-jazz merged innocuously with the woeful, dull moans of that day's Samsel patients. Nurse Fossbender resented the moaning. It had been a long minute since she worked the night shift, but this evening's opportunity was too fond to pass up. She did not notice the jazz or any of the other sounds, just the endless moaning. It made her hungry. Orderly Hotshine walked past, navigating his supply hovecart. The lanky, sheepishly handsome young man's hair was mud-brown, long in front and buzz short in back, as was the style of the day. He brushed it from his eyes and mumbled, Hello, Nurse Fossbender. Nurse Fossbender did not even look at him. The pink rolls of flesh undulated beneath her chin when she spoke. Spencer? There's urine and vomit on the floor in 12A. You're going to need to wax the cafeteria floor also. Going to be a long night for you, looks like. I'll get it done as soon as standards are complete, ma'am, said the custodian glumly as he ambled down the hall. Uh-huh, said Nurse Fossbender. She had the flicker of a thought that there was something different about the boy. In her eyes, this orderly, no custodian, did not really exist. Males were a product of function, an unfortunate but necessary means to an end. Presently, she could hear three patients wailing loudly in their rooms on the far end of the wing. Nurse Fossbender considered the slaughterhouse headaches to be mythological, psychosomatic, the work of fringe groups in the traditionalist media. Everyone had heard of slaughterhouse headaches on the Holovision. They'd been around since the procedure was invented. By the time a booze bum or shiner had offended their way to a level 3 B-mod stint, they practically knew to complain after surgery. The 48 hours of IRS-funded post-Samsel recovery time level 3 patients got to sip on orange juice and roll around whining like whipped cats before discharge was overly generous. Booze bums leech off the system, she thought. If it was up to Nurse Fossbender, they'd be put back on the streets with a holoscript for some plesium as soon as the drill was yanked from their eye. Besides, it was a statistical fact that the majority of Level 3 booze bums never even paid the IRS back for their treatment. All you people should be breaking a rock at Hypatia 5 instead of lollygagging in a feather bed. She sneered and pinched her chubby fingers together across the glass surface of the holotab resting in her lap, collapsing a 21st century woman holozine on weight loss. The article recommended using a new hemp Botox lotion to address cellulite. 
The topic made Nurse Fossbender irritable. She had purchased every weight loss salve available to no effect, though her OBGYN said it was within prevailing norms to be 35 kilos heavy after a cycle of pregnancy hormones. What about 185 kilos? If only Lucinda didn't have that hysterectomy. Marlene's physician recommended that she follow the same dietary regimen as a woman going through an antique pregnancy over the nine months of extrauterine lab gestation, this so her stem cells could be administered to the developing fetus to ward off genetic defects. The thought of actually growing a baby inside was foul. Marlene sneered at the thought. She opened the desk drawer and snatched up a hemp butters bar and a gold foil wrapper. Her mouth flowed with saliva. Being honest, she knew she had only volunteered for the pregnancy cycle so she could have an excuse to eat more. It was not lost on Marlene that she had secretly maintained her gestation diet for the seven months since their daughter had been born as well. The standard 2100-calorie NAUS citizen diet is so... Anorexic, I hate skinny bitches. A trash can-shaped clean droid hovered past. The polisher spinning on either side of the small bot made a high-pitched whirring. Nurse Fossbender curled her lips at the droid like a possum caught in the act. This is why I never work nights, all the bots and simple-minded orderlies flitting about like gnats. A female patient down the hall moaned loudly, almost a scream. Fossbender lifted her rumpled chin and barked at the ceiling. Computer! Increase music, volume, station five. The computerized jazz got louder. She could no longer hear the moaning, and the floor bot soon glided mechanically away down the hall, restoring relative peace. It was better. She devoured the hemp butters bar and smacked her lips. She let the last oversized bite coagulate between the roof of her mouth and her tongue, then dropped the wrapper in the trash can, watching as the disintegrators fired and the wrapper vanished in a purple matrix of laser light. Sadly, even this wonderful little mouth party could not lift the fog of irritation that hung about. Patient 373C was to blame. In addition to being the registered nurse on Greystone's Level 3 slaughterhouse floor, Nurse Fossbender also functioned as a vision-certified social worker for Level 1 and 2 alcohol offenders on the light security wings. She'd taken advantage of the tax-deductible behavioral mod certification offered to nurses by the IRS. The course took eight weeks to complete and was made available to anyone with a rudimentary understanding of vision for $999. It was taught in the community classroom at the Chinese Walmart Consortium. It was easy therapy. If you didn't have the answer to an addict's specific problem, there was always the fallback response. Quit drinking alcohol. Start vaping Jane. Marlene had been a vision-certified social worker for three years. Her best patients acquiesced out of fear. They were usually first-time offenders afraid of losing their job, afraid of losing their lovers, pets, or children. There were a thousand ways to bend the will of every addict. That is until she met patient 373C. Four hours earlier, she had shuttered observation in 373C's room after the last floor CVSW had completed his rounds and departed. Being a flight risk, the patient was restrained. The nurse labored her thick calves down the hall and scanned into the room, smiling lugubriously, dragging the tips of her orange false fingernails across the nightshine surface of the blue plastic door. She locked it manually from the inside. She passed her holotab in front of the wall comm to disable the room's dedicated microdrone. In her heart, 
Nurse Fossbender believed the morning's SAMHSA operation on this particular patient would be a victory for society at large. This moment, however, was personal. The patient gazed at her venomously and spat like the snake she was. Well, if it isn't the bookshelf. Don't you know entering my room without notice breaks the rules, fatty? I think I'm going to have to report you. The nurse pulled a small silver disc the size of a coat button from her pocket and dropped it on the girl's neck. The vocal inhibitor illuminated. Nanotentacles emerged from either side of the disc and plunged themselves into the patient's throat, paralyzing her vocal cords. The girl's eyes grew wild with fear. She struggled to scream, terrified, doing her best to recoil. A teardrop rolled slowly, methodically down her freckled cheek as the nurse loomed over. Nurse Fossbender grinned warmly and said, Oh, you're not the first young troublemaker who's been chastened by my tongue. But you still have to be the stupidest Betty I ever met. You're on L3, the only rules now are the slaughterhouse rules, cunt. You don't seriously think crying's going to make me feel sorry for you. I've been waiting two months for this. She grabbed the control grip of the biobrace that ran over the girl's ribcage and yanked it, using her substantial body weight. Patient 373C gasped from the pressure. Her bloodshot eyes darted back and forth, desperate, flickering between the nurse's approaching face and the blinded microdrone hovering innocuously in the corner. What? Can't talk? Continued the nurse. Where's your smart mouth now? Oh, how sad. Does it bother you? See, I turned off observation so we could have a private visit. You traditionalists just cherish privacy, don't you? Nurse Fossbender grabbed the back of a metal folding chair and dragged it, screeching across the polished cement floor. She sat and leaned in slow towards the bed, relishing in the girl's discomfort, nostrils flaring with stimulation. Is it tough to breathe, dear? She cooed. You know why I'm here, don't you? The morning you were admitted, I told you I'd find a way to pay you a special visit. Now it's just the two of us. Patient 373C turned her head away from the nurse and stared at the narrow rectangular window in the door. There he was, at last, a figure stood in white hospital scrubs watching the two women. Patient 373C made eye contact and blinked. Not yet, you moron. The figure nodded and melted into the shadows. This scene with the nurse had to be played out first or the plan would never work. Patient 373C had known there would be a confrontation as soon as the fat woman showed up volunteering to sub the graveyard shift, so she was doing the best she could with what she had. Besides, it's not like there was a choice. The nurse came even closer. There was no one to help. This was the definite downside to spending your slaughterhouse prep in isolation. Patient 373C's breathing came in short bursts. She listened to the gargantuan woman's crowing, guttural voice. She felt lightheaded. She couldn't waste the oxygen to fight or she'd risk passing out. The straps were so tight. If she passed out, life as she knew it would be over. She decided to focus on immaterial things. Her blue hemp jeans hung in the closet with a few other street clothes and the pair of black combat boots she had been arrested in. Patient 373C noted how many different shades of blue actually made up a pair of blue jeans. They were all there, 
the full spectrum of her favorite color laid out in thousands of dyed hemp stitches ranging from cobalt to baby powder. Such a simple and beautiful thing. Her sweatshirt was a hemp poly blend, pink in color. She hated pink. It didn't even go with blue. Why had she stolen that sweatshirt from the thrift shop? Because she was doing the best she could with what she had. All the same, pink and blue garments had no business being in the same world together, just like Marlene Fossbender and Tara Dean. Excerpt taken from the People's Progressive Encyclopedia, 2073, edition 27, volume 2, letter frame 16. Alcohol addiction treatment programs at various IRS-certified clinics around the country must follow standardized federal vision protocols. At the time of this article's publication, behavioral modification clinics funded solely by the IRS account for 51% of market share. 39% are funded primarily by corporations, though these private sector hospitals all receive secondary federal grants. The remaining 10% of clinics are primarily non-profit in nature and are operated by community initiatives. In 2072, the largest private sector sponsor of behavioral modification programs in the North American United States Union was the marijuana conglomerate Cannabigene. Smaller, localized marijuana producers follow with third-tier donations. Note, as of January 1, 2070, 100% of contributions made to a behavioral modification hospital are tax-deductible, assuming the hospital is federally certified and receives at least 51% of its operating costs from the IRS Benevolence Fund. November 2079, two years, 11 months before event. Adult participants in NAUS Visionary Reeducation, aka Behavioral Modification, are required to stand up on the first day of group therapy and make the following statement. Hello, my name is John Doe, and I'm an alcoholic. As Nurse Fossbender prepared to lead therapy that morning, the day had so far been typical. 16 new patients were registered, Three had missed the first day due to illness, stubbornness, or the fact that they were still intoxicated at the time of admission. She scanned their profiles on her holotab while waiting for the rest of the patients to arrive. The first of the three absentees was Melky O'Brien, 36 years old, missed day one due to illness. Mr. O'Brien was a firefighter, pulled over from manually floating through a red LED and destroying a pedestrian's Fido Batborg. As was standard practice, the police pulled blood chem data from O'Brien's combud and discovered he was floating while blended. Nurse Fossbender shook her head. A citizen need only wait two hours after vaporizing their last hit before they could legally pilot a huff car. If people couldn't wait two hours or use autopilot, they deserved an FUI. Let them suffer. It was boilerplate thinking like this that had garnered Nurse Fossbender her nickname, The Bookshelf. In addition to the corroborating blood chem data, Melky O'Brien was unable to recite the alphabet backwards, skipping every other letter within 59 seconds while standing on one leg. He failed the roadside sobriety test and was arrested. When police searched his hubcar, they discovered a mason jar wrapped in a flannel shirt under the passenger seat, containing 2.3 ounces of persimmon rum. O'Brien was charged with floating under the influence and possession of an illicit substance. The man had no prior drug record and was sentenced to the usual 30 days of level 1 inpatient behavioral modification. Nurse Fossbender blinked periodically, auto-scrolling through the hollow data as the rest of the group shuffled glumly into the room. 
O'Brien was put on BMOD leave without pay. However, the Lawrence Fire Department was picking up the cost of his rehabilitation. His wife had not divorced him, she noted. Foolish woman. Once a drunk, always a drunk. Nurse Fossbender wasn't paid to tell people the obvious. She was paid to tell people how to build a better happy. Mr. Melky O'Brien sat in the corner with a head full of red hair buried between his enormous Irish hands. The man looked like he was about to die from embarrassment. She noted this quickly in his file. The system was already doing its job. The second tardy patient was a recent arrival to the North American United States on a work visa from Afghanistan. The man was a nuclear physicist, according to Hollow Records. Missed day one due to stubbornness, refusing to leave his room. They all got a free day to burn, though Marlene Fossbender had zero empathy for foreigners arrested on Union soil, particularly those who violated drug laws. These people knew the rules before they came here to take advantage of our job market. They could not have their cake and eat it too. No economy in the world could compare with the Union since the passage of Amendment 33. Every time she got a foreigner, Nurse Fossbender realized how much the citizens of other barbaric, alcoholic nations would benefit from 30 days beneath her heel. If only Kansas was the world's capital. This rowdy Afghan didn't speak English. She would have to update her Afghan translator app. The man sat, sullen in the back of the room beside the booze-bum firefighter O'Brien. She would use him and the pathetic state of the Afghan economy, to exemplify what happens when nations cling to outmoded 20th-century drug norms. She noted this opportunity in the Afghan's file, and moved on to review admin notes on the third tardy patient. This one was interesting. Patient 373B. Missed day one due to intoxication. The subject somehow bribed an orderly to bring her a half-pint of still vodka during the intake process. Tara A. Dean, age 25, employed as a tattoo illustrator at Doragon Skinworks. The girl was sent here from New Riverside, California by her family's attorney. All hospital fees were paid in advance by her nearest living relative in Asteria Dean. This female was a second-time offender. Nurse Fossbender felt goosebumps kindling on her arms as she scanned the lines of personal data. First of all, this patient was extremely attractive. Nurse Fossbender looked around the meeting room on the off chance she had missed the Betty walking in. She had not. The holotab projected two different images. One was a hospital file hollow of Taradine at age 14 when she was admitted to Greystone Behavioral for the first time. Her hair in that hollow was irritatingly long and natural, hanging down past her elbows in shining black waves. She had piercing green eyes, a button nose, and flawless olive skin. Too much eyeliner and mascara for a teenager, thought Fossbender. She looked frighteningly adult in the hollow. Her NADI report indicated that she was 66% Israeli, 31% British, with a scattering of French, German, and Mexican comprising the last 3% of her heritage. A typical American Betty. The second image was her California DMV pilot's hollow, scanned at the time of renewal just a few months earlier. The contrast was stark. The patient's hair was cut shorter now, accentuating the curvature of her lips and mouth puckered together in an irritated expression. The young woman had earrings in this image, two pewter cobras. Beneath her left ear was a tattoo of numerous green stars that cascaded down her sleek neck onto the line of her collarbone. 
The tattooed stars were big at the top and got smaller as they fell, condensing in a star pool universe at the bottom. Her eyes were still the same, bright and brash and blasé all at the same time, though their gaze was tempered by less makeup. The girl looked only slightly older in the second hollow. She had not gained weight over the years like most drug users. In fact, patient 373B was in fantastic physical condition and had requested a yoga mat. <laughs> Nurse Fossbender despised people who exercise voluntarily. Tardine's primary care nurse at the time of her first arrest was Marlene Fossbender's predecessor, Neil Young, a notorious traditionalist sympathizer who had retired two years earlier. Young departed Greystone with a reputation for leniency when it came to citizen alcohol violators. Nurse Young was a radical. That's all he was. Not only would he deviate dangerously from vision protocol by suggesting that it was okay to like drinking, he would even go so far as to say that vaporizing marijuana and taking plesium was not for everyone. It was absurd. The nurse gurgled with exasperation and looked up. Her bulbous eyes found a static holoposter on the opposite wall that she had read a thousand times. In a schlocky green and black font, the holographic poster listed the 12 steps to vision. 1. The use of psychoactive substances for recreation by the NAUS Union citizenry is normal and expected. 2. Any psychoactive substance used to alter consciousness must further the citizen's essential harmony between mind, body, environment, and economy, a.k.a. vision. 3. All legally approved psychoactive substances shall represent the will of the many over the desire of the few. 4. Any legally approved psychoactive substance must further the ecological balance between the North American United States society and the natural world. 5. Psychoactive substances whose production place an undue burden on the Union's naturally occurring fresh water supplies shall not be permitted. 6. Psychoactive substances whose usage is toxic to the fabric of North American United States society shall not be permitted. 7. Psychoactive substances that elicit emotions of anger, hatred, or violence shall not be permitted. 8. The Schedule I federally controlled substances, alcohol, methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine, DMT, MDMA, LSD, or otherwise illicit pharmaceutical production, possession, or use in any form outside of a federally endorsed research facility, shall not be permitted. 9. All tobacco, tea, coffee, and marijuana production facilities must comply with EPA regulations and prominently project their current IRS and MTF hollow licenses in a visible locale at the dispensary's public entrance. 10. Unlicensed tea, coffee, and tobacco production in a private residence or on privately owned land shall not be permitted. 11. Any individual or group caught producing tea, coffee, or tobacco on private land shall be required to undergo standard outpatient behavioral modification treatment at a regional vision clinic. Second, level two, and third, level three, time offenders shall be subject to 30-day inpatient hospital treatment, the same as a controlled substance violator. 12. 
Civilian applications for free government plots on which to grow marijuana may be uploaded at any DEA or EPA registration office, or at the IRS payment kiosk located in your neighborhood police station. The words were benevolent, succinct, effective. Neil Young had not believed in them. This was reflected in his treatment records. Nurse Young logged extensive non-clinical notes on every patient. The fact that he had not only spent 40 hours a week at the hospital working, but actually pretended to care about these booze bums, was flabbergasting to Marlene Fossbender. She began skimming the non-clinical notes from patient 373A's last visit, 11 years prior, and made it as far as, My name is Tara Dean, and if you... before collapsing the file. So many words, so little time. I got a pair for you, missy. They are nuts. Nurse Fossbender brushed over her holotab surface, swiping through the file to the public information on Taradine's most recent arrest until she found the Riverside County, California, CNED report. She paraphrased it quickly. Subject was arrested in a vodka speakeasy in her hometown of New Riverside by local CNED. She was charged on three criminal counts. One, possession and consumption of a controlled substance, alcohol. Two, misrepresentation of vision. This was a standard violation that every second and third time alcohol offender was charged with. Three, financial support of a criminal enterprise or speakeasy. The nurse raised her eyebrows. California CNED indicated the patient was able to walk past three agents by convincing them that she was undercover CNED herself. The girl was only arrested after she accidentally tripped over a curb while, quote, engaging in light conversation, end quote with the CNED field commander outside the speakeasy in question. The officer realized she was intoxicated at that point and asked to scan her combud for CNED verification. There was no combud present. The girl's body was free of tech. When the field commander put his hand on the subject's forearm to restrain her, Ms. Dean delivered a swift kick to the man's testicles and bit him on the left forearm, drawing blood. Nurse Fossbender's eyes grew wide. One agent's statement described Tara Dean as being sexy. At that, Nurse Fossbender activated her tablet's full hollow keys and quickly typed her own entry in the notes. Day one, patient 373B. The same agent who was bit and kicked still under the impression woman is sexy after the fact, possible addicto borderline tendencies. Why did CNED field commander not press charges? Following Miss Dean's arrest, the family requested that she be treated in Kansas to avoid any potential embarrassment in their new Riverside community. After a detailed examination of the patient history, one thing is clear. This girl will require extensive attitude realignment. Marlene Fossbender, registered nurse, vision certified, social worker. She clicked her chubby fingers together. The projection diodes on her holotab blinked off and the keyboard vanished. A blink collapsed the patient's holophiles completely. The nurse snorted, again looking around the room at the despondent, humiliated gaggle of booze bums that were her charge over the next thirty days. The tide was never ending, between level one, level two, and level three patients being prepped for slaughterhouse treatment, there was always up to sixty patients in her care alone. Every month, every year. What could one nurse do to help? If citizens want for self-destruction, was stronger than their want for vision. The problem lay with people like Neil Young, centrists, moderates, traditionalist privacy advocates. The only people who value privacy 
or those with something to hide. The days of Nurse Young and his belief in the inherent good of every patient were fortunately behind the hospital. Nurse Fossbender also believed people were inherently good, as long as they allowed themselves to be properly treated. For those traditionalists who insisted on promoting normalized usage of the world's most destructive drug, Nurse Fossbender would be there. The nurse was blessed with sight. Whether through public shaming or a sonic drill to the eye, she had made it her life's conviction to stamp out the scourge of alcohol. The digidollars weren't bad either. Three minutes before the meeting was to commence, patient 373B sauntered into the room, dragging a low-hanging cloud of melancholy with her. The girl was pretty as advertised. She wore a plain red baseball cap over her black hair, blue jeans, and a faded pink university sweatshirt with the words rock chalk across the chest. Her eyes were like jade searchlights scanning methodically, making a brief analysis of not only Nurse Fossbender but the other patients in the room as well. Finally, Tardine sighed audibly and sat down in the last open seat next to Melky O'Brien. She immediately crossed her arms and rolled her eyes. Nurse Fossbender noticed that the fireman perked up and smiled as soon as the girl took a seat. Marlene Fossbender had been young once. She knew exactly how Tardine had managed to slip by. The little whore had probably spent every day between her first and second arrests high on alcohol, spread eagle on the back of any booze house she could find. This patient used her sex to manipulate. You're in Kansas now, young lady. Neil Young and his antique views have burned out and faded. She would bring the girl in line, woman to woman. The nurse stood and closed the door to the meeting room. The door was heavy and made a definitive clack that silenced conversation. It was an authoritative noise Nurse Fossbender found most satisfying. She was optimistic about what the dazed group therapy meeting would bring. It had begun just like a hundred before it. Unfortunately, she had no way of knowing the meeting would only last another nine minutes. Excerpt taken from the People's Progressive Encyclopedia, 2071, edition 23, volume 8, letter frames 412 to 413. The following is a direct quotation from the North American United States Constitution. NAUSC, Amendment 46. As of December 30, 2062, splices of canine gene sequences with non-expiring fusion-powered robotic systems are hereby banned in all 91 states. Federal ban likewise applies to the Nunavut, Northwest, Yukon, Bermudan, Cuban, and Bahamian territories. Suspected hybrid lifeform activity shall be reported by all registered citizens to appropriate state law enforcement divisions and or the Federal Cyborg Commission. The design of fusion-powered cybernetic systems must proceed in accordance with Amendment 222, canine biomorphology only. Civilian civ-grade law enforcement models, as well as standard Batborg FIDOs powered by the solar grid, will conform to average species dimensions and may be encased in a synthetic exopolymer or bioskin. Military, mil-grade models must be bioskin-free and shall be maximized to three-dimensional aspect ratios of 3 meters by 4 meters by 6 meters. As final cyborg biosyngram spool, any attempt at external reprogramming or autonomic neural restructuring must result in initialization of self-destruct protocols, for example, core implosion. End quote.
Amendment 222 was originally drafted by Senate Majority Leader Lupe Martinez in direct response to the Dark Pool Labs massacre of 2061 in Lenexa, Kansas. Senator Martinez was a distant relative of cyborg geneticist Marvin Adler, the principal Dark Pool Labs researcher. In addition to creating the first functional cyborg operating system, Adler is best known for his invention of stem cell-based bioskin, which is used today in medical applications such as tissue grafting, organ exchange, and exopolymer synthetic cell manufacture. Exopolymer technology was the basis for Darkpool Labs' successful 2060 grafting of genetically engineered canine dermal tissue to a robotic titanoloom chassis based on the Canis Latrans endoskeleton. This cybernetic organism was initially celebrated by the North American public as Coyote One. Coyote One was cloned in secret 17 times by Darkpool Labs in the spring of 2061 in an effort to determine whether onboard learning algorithms or memories would be duplicated from replica to replica over time. Laboratory records indicate that Canis latrans was chosen as the case study template due to the species' adaptive immune system response to foreign tissue introduction. The Coyote series was not spooled with self-destruct protocols. Accordingly, it is assumed that autonomic neural restructuring cascaded forward at an exponential rate with each clone generation. The Coyote series dogs units were intentionally designed as the physically weakest models, with a 2.0 cyborg strength factor. In retrospect of the massacre, the cybernetics community posits that this decision was made specifically by Dr. Adler to compensate for the lack of self-destruct protocols in the robot's CompuGene code. For vernacular reference, military AK-9 Civ dogs units based on the Canis Familiaris Rottweiler, German Shepherd, or Doberman chassis have a top gallop range of 127 to 145 kilometers per hour and a medium bite force of 5,000 kilograms. Coyote series dogs units have a governed gallop speed of 65 kilometers and a bite force of 400 kilograms. Their CPUs were engineered to network, simulating the pack behavior of the animal in its indigenous environment. Despite all precautions, Dr. Marvin Adler and 11 Darkspool Lab scientists were found disemboweled in the facility basement by National Guard troopers on July 3, 2061. The throats of each corpse had been lacerated. Holovid surveillance shows that Coyote 1 and the 17 clones in her pack escaped from Darkpool by leaping, single file, through a window three meters off the ground, where they were able to access the first floor of the facility. From there, the dogs' units escaped into the wild. At the time of this publication, none have been found. The ongoing disappearance of the Coyote dogs' units remains a mystery of modern science. Seven copycat livestock mutilations have been reported in eastern Kansas since the original massacre. Universal self-destruct protocols are now standard issue in all canine cybernetic organisms with a fusion-based power supply. This concludes Chapter 1.4 of The Eighteenth Shadow, Phase 1, Dawn of the Courtesan. Please visit johnleegraftonbooks.com to sign up for the 18th Shadow mailing list. On johnleegraftonbooks.com, you can also download the free digital box set, containing the first three books in the six-part series. The free box set is available in Kindle format, as well as Smashwords, Kobo, and Barnes & Noble Nook. Remember, citizens, Kindle isn't just a thing. It's a free app you can put on your phone to start reading the 18th Shadow box set today. 
Prefer paperback like it's 1981? Visit Prospero's Books at 1800 West 39th Street in Kansas City, Missouri, where every phase of the 18th Shadow is available built of glue, ink, and compressed dead trees, the way books were meant to be read by real North Americans. Until next time, this is your author and narrator, John Lee Grafton, reminding you to spay and neuter your pets. And remember, if it's not cannabis, kids, don't smoke it. This has been a public service announcement of the 18th Shadow Radio. For more information, please visit johnleegraftonbooks.com.